0: Kind of conversation between the soul. Conversation between the soul. Hello, Prestige Heads, and welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner, here as always with my friend and comrade Derek Davison. And we're excited to welcome to the podcast today, Lyle Jeremy Rubin. Lyle is an author, and he is specifically the author of the recent book Pain is Weakness Leaving the Body, A Marines Unbecoming. Lyle, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me. I look forward to it.
0: So uh this is a memoir. So why don't we start at the beginning? Where were you born? It was a dark and stormy night in the 1980s so uh why don't we start wherever you wanna wanna begin? Um, and, and particularly why don't we talk about how it came to be that you were someone who would want to do something like join the Marines. Because, you know, I was never that person. Uh, I was never someone who felt the need to join the Marines. So how did you, surprising, I'm sure, for listeners to hear, how did you develop into that person?
1: Well, first of all, I think most people that meet me now are surprised that I was ever in the Marines. So uh, you're, not, you're not as alone as you think you are. <laughs> I, I didn't I, know I, bet, I was yeah. going to join the Marines either um until uh really until 9 11 but l- just rewind a little bit i i was born um born and raised in west arford connecticut um born in the early 80s uh i was really much very much like a 90s kid um and then i was two weeks into college um when 9 11 happened uh and that was a formative experience for me
0: well before we get to that like what yeah. was your childhood like like because I know you talk a lot about masculinity and things like that. Like, what was your childhood like? How did that inform, or how do you think that informed, as someone who wrote a memoir at a relatively young age? How do you think that informed your later choices?
1: Sure. So yeah, I, I the, the whole first chapter is kind of devoted to my to my childhood. It was it was a you know an upper middle class Jewish town for the most part. I mean, you know, by Jewish town I mean like twenty percent Jewish, which is significant for most of the American population. Parents were were doctors, so it wasn't the kind of place where a lot of people end up joining up. And, you know, I write in the book about, you know, I try to be as honest as possible about being bullied and and even like sexually violated at times, uh, and how that uh, kind of propelled me to both a politics and eventually an occupation that I saw as being uh, especially masculine. And that could kind of serve as my own ticket to manhood. And, and I could feel safe, uh, once I have that ticket. Uh, you know, I also talk about my, my father who I I love dearly, you know, he was always a very loving father, but he was pretty aggressive in the household when, when I was a kid. So that kind of added to this, this need in me to, to feel safe, uh, through a kind of conventional masculinity
0: how would you say that informed your ideology or did it inform your ideology growing up like were your parents just democrat voters what was the household politics
1: yeah it was it was kind of a typical center left liberal uh jewish household so i was definitely rebelling against uh my father especially when i when i first moved to the right politically i was listening i had a, another friend of mine uh, another jewish friend who you know both turned me on to right-wing politics and also kind of like observant Judaism. I, I was going to the the shul every, you know, Shabbos, and I was eating kosher. And then we were also listening to Rush Limbaugh. <laughs> so that was kind of my entree to, to conservative ideology uh, with Rush. And then through there, I ended up Reading Milton Friedman, and then 9/11 happened. You know, my my first year into college, and I ended up uh, reading a lot of the neocons at that point. So I was reading like Charles Krauthammer and Max Boot and David Frum and you know Bill Kristol. All of, you know, all you know, Charles Krauthammer is no longer alive, but the others are still obviously very uh, prominent voices in our politics. But um, well, where did you go to college? Yeah. Like, what was the I, environment of, of of your college? I went to uh, Emory University uh, in Atlanta. Uh, Again, you know, uh, not all that different than where I was raised. You know, again, significant Jewish population, you know, mostly privileged kids like myself. Uh, So after 9-11, you know, I started actually writing pieces for the school newspaper in support of the war in Afghanistan. Eventually, I was writing pieces in support of the war in Iraq. I became. I ended up becoming the editorials editor of the newspaper. I became the co editor of the political magazine on campus. So I became very much a pro war voice on campus. And at some point, uh, I think it was around my junior year, I you know basically started telling people I was going to join up uh, and, and likely follow in my grandfather's footsteps. Uh, he was a marine during World War II. He he was actually he got shot in the head at Iwo Jima. Uh, survived with a metal plate in his head, raised a family, started a business. He was always a hero of mine. Uh, so I think it was toward the end of my college career that I, I made the decision that I'd be following in his footsteps and and also kind of um, not just talking the talk but walking the walk.
0: What were the arguments you were making in college in favor of you know U.S. empire, U.S. invasion? where did you situate yourself and w- what ideologically did you think was being accomplished by, you know, the invasion of Afghanistan and Iraq?
1: Yeah. I mean, I had a tough time writing about this part of my life because in, in some sense I think I was a true believer. I mean, you know, I was writing very much like from a kind of like Neo Wilsonian vein that we would be bringing in order to make the world safe. You know, we had to make the world safe for democracy, And and this meant, like, expanding democracy to to every corner of the world, at least the corners of the world that the U.S. government happened to be interested at one point or another. Um, Yeah,
0: I actually think, and I'm actually curious what both of you, Derek and and Lyle, think about this. People really did believe that. I feel like on the left, they're like, that was all bullshit. It was all about oil and rapacious militarism. But I do think that a third stool, a a third leg in that stool of empire was people really did believe, due, I think, to the end of history stuff, that spreading democracy was like a vital US interest. I don't think that was just cover for material interest. I'm curious if you if you guys think that that I'm wrong about that.
1: Yeah, I mean, I should mention that I was also reading a lot of like Christopher Hitchens. I think he really believed this. I I think Paul Wolfowitz, uh, who is kind of like Hitchens favorite uh, you know, uh policy um Insider at the time b- very much believed this. I think a lot of them didn't necessarily believe it. I think, you know, I think a lot of them probably behind closed doors and we even have documentation of this at times, uh, you know, were interested in in the kind of great power competition. Uh, yeah, but and, like and Cheney and
0: Rumsfeld never claimed otherwise. Right. People always say Cheney and Rumsfeld didn't believe that, but they they never claimed to believe that they were always yes. sort of the realist. Right. Bush would put it in his speeches and I kind of think Bush believed that I kind of think his evangelical missionary stuff really helped him believe that and this is a this is a core ideological strand going back to the uh, beginning of the Republic. But I just so I just want to say, like, I, I, I don't I don't think there were many people who are arguing in public about spreading democracy and then who are going back and being like, fuck that. That's bullshit. Cheney never said that they were really spreading democracy in a real way. Rumsfeld never said that. But sorry, sorry to interrupt, Miles. please.
1: Oh, no, no, no. I, I think I would, I would mostly agree with that. But it was tough for me to write because I didn't want to make it seem like I was kind of absolving myself. Like, why I, I was this innocent, you know, idealistic boy who, who was seeking democracy or something? I, I, you know, I wanted to go a little deeper than that. And, you know, of course, there were all sorts of reasons why I, I was um, I had the politics I had and that why I was doing what I was doing and why I ended up signing up. And I think it was this weird combination of this kind of, you know, ideological I- idealism. Uh, this again, this kind of neo Wilsonian politics, but it was simultaneous with, you know, this kind of um, strength-driven politics. Uh, you know, we, you know, I was, I was kind of, I, I was reading Hitchens, and I was reading Wolfowitz's policy papers and or white papers or whatever, and and shearing and then. The next day I'd be watching uh, you know, something like um Tom Friedman's video with with um what's his name? Charles uh f- forgetting the guy's name, but that famous interview where he says, suck on this. Oh, Tom Friedman. Tom Friedman. Yeah. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. yeah. Tom Friedman yeah. on, on uh, Charlie with Rose. Charlie, right? Rose. Yeah. Yeah, Charlie yeah, Rose, yeah. Charlie yeah, Rose. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, yeah. So
1: like one day yeah. I'd be speaking on, with on one side of my mouth, I'd be talking about democracy, and the next day I'd be cheering on this very kind of you know, embarrassingly hyper-masculine language. You know that 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 we need to show the terrorists who is really boss, and you know, violence was sometimes necessary in t- in order to secure you know our place in the world. Um, so I don't think it was entirely uh, an unqualified idealism. I think I was I was kind of straddling the line. I think a lot of people, you know, even Hitchens. I think, uh, even though he, he was kind of like the the most eloquent. Uh, you know, left idealist at the same time. I mean, he was an incredibly, you know, aggressive, uh, you know, masculine figure in a lot of ways and, and was constantly kind of mocking the soft-hearted left, uh, you know, in his debate with Noam Chomsky on the pages of The Nation. I mean, he very much took this kind of, you know, this, this serious-minded uh, masculine posture uh, you know, of course we can 't just treat this like another police action of of course we we need to you know uh meet force with force um so I think it was a it was a mix of a, a lot going on there
2: with myself and with a lot of people around me i mean Friedman uh, that rose appearance I think is uh, illustrative because he was talking about Iraq, and I feel like we've memory holed the fact that not just thinking about the people who were making policy at the time but polling of the american people showed that not only was the afghanistan invasion popular people were broadly supportive of the iraq invasion at the time it's not until years afterwards when it became obvious that it was you know a problem and i that that people that public opinion turned on it um i i think and you know everybody has their reasons saddam was like public enemy number one for Twenty years or whatever it was, and and you know, there, there, I'm sure there were a lot of reas- different reasons why people wanted him gone. But I think some of it was certainly the idea that the United States can do some good. We can spread democracy. We can spread freedom to the Middle East. So yeah, I, I you know, I I I agree with I agree with you, Danny. There's there's certainly a, a belief that was pervasive. Um, again, not just at the elite levels, although as you've written, uh, and I agree with this. None of these movements, none of these intellectual movements, could sustain themselves if it was all just like, you know, obviously cynically trying to play the rubes. There's got to be some true believers in there to to make these things happen, and that's whether it's neoconservatism or liberal interventionism or you know anything really, any of these schools of thought, they have to have some true believers to sustain themselves. But it was also a, a, a feeling that I think a lot of just ordinary Americans shared, and I know you know the, there's this is the 20th anniversary of the war and there's been a lot of focus on how large the protests were at the time against it and there was all this public outcry but there was also a, a lot of polling that said you know a majority of people support this and you know I just I think certainly some portion of that has to be attributed to this idea of you know the shining city on the hill going out and doing uh, good deeds around the world and spreading what was the Bushism uh, peance and Freiance uh, to Iraq. <laughs> so so, i mean you know i just i i I agree generally with that derek
0: never disagreed in public with me so good always agree Party discipline i like it (laughs) uh so lyle let's return to to your story and how the hell do you find yourself going from emory university in at beautiful atlanta to the marines what was that process like how did your family react did your friends think you were doing something wild? What was it like in your social circle? Were like you going to the Hillel and talking about neoconservative stuff? How did that work?
1: Yeah, it was definitely. It was actually going to Kaban, uh and talking about neoconservative. Damn, stuff. you were uh, doing I, the real. The real Hillel. Hillel was too soft for me. Um, uh, and you know, I had other friends of mine at the time who also said that they would be joining me uh, at Officer Candidate School, and and they ended up bowing out. Uh, before that date arrived, um, so I ended up going alone. And I, I remember when I first started telling people, other than my my close friends who I'd been talking to for a while about maybe doing this, you know, everyone else thought I was joking. They didn't think I was serious. My dad literally like laughed in my face and didn't think much of it until months later when I actually like submitted the paperwork. So you know, I mean, this goes. To, I, I haven't mentioned this, but I was also like, I was a theater kid in high school. Uh, you know, I, I wasn't a, a terribly good athlete. I, I did play sports, but I wasn't very good at it. So there were a lot of reasons why people probably weren't taking this commitment of mine seriously. And then as far as like, once I went in, I mean, it was a very kind of unorthodox windy route. Uh, I went to office of kid school and I had, you know, I, I was academically fit. I was physically fit, but it was a total culture shock for me. I didn't come from a military family. I didn't come from, from a military town. I didn't do junior ROTC. I didn't do ROTC in college. All I had was my grandfather, you know? And and so I just, even though I had seen all the movies that everyone else had seen, I just really wasn't prepared psychologically for that kind of environment. Uh, I still thought I could kind of like win over people with reason, and you know, and it's, so I got a lot of like, right off the bat, I remember like one of the first lines I got a lot is like, you're so smart. You're stupid. I mean, this is like the drill instructors like constantly screaming to me that I'm I'm so smart. I'm stupid, and that's a line that a uh, that a lot of people like me get when we first go to an environment like that. So I I had a tough time. I I ended up making it to the fifth week, and then basically I I sprained my ankle, but I also got kicked out. And they invited me back to Officer Candidate School, but I I didn't want did to. Why would you get fun. kicked
0: out? Could you just tell like what what was? Oh like, yeah, sure. How does sure. that work? So, what is that process like?
1: So um. The way it works at Arthur's Candidate School, I believe it still works this way, is for the first two weeks, maybe it's the first three weeks, uh, you're allowed to drop on your request, which is basically you voluntarily quit. So a lot, you, the, 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 you see the most people drop out as far as three weeks. And the cost of, of quitting within those three weeks is that often you don't get invited back. If you quit, then you're a quitter and they don't want you in their gun club. So I was very much determined to at least make it past the first few weeks. And then after that, you no longer have a choice to quit. You have to be kicked out by the institution. And that's based on a lot of different metrics. It could be your physical scores, it could be your academic scores, and it could be your leadership scores. So I was there at a time when the Officer, uh, the, the head of the officer candidate school, he was a colonel, and he, I, I remember him very distinctly. He always had the piece of straw in his mouth, and he was a good old boy from the South. And we'd always be talking in a very Southern accent about who belonged in his gun club and who didn't. But in any case, he was also very determined to only let in the best of the best. So even though we were fighting a two-front war at this time, this is 2006, the summer of 2006, And even though he was hearing from civilian higher ups that he needed to graduate a certain percentage of the officer candidate school class, he was basically giving them all a middle finger. And I think the attrition rate it was just like ridiculously high. I think like 30 to 40 percent made it all the way through. So it was like a significant majority was was getting either quitting or, or getting kicked out. And one of the ways that he did this, he, he, he basically gave the drill instructors, or I guess they're called sergeant instructors that are all in school, like free reign to sleep-deprive their targets as much as they, they like. And the way that they did this is they would, it, it sounds really ridiculous. Um, this is this is how it w- was done. They would sign you a, assign you a bunch of essays you'd have to write while everyone else was sleeping. And the, the, these were 300-word essays, and you couldn't have any, like, you were writing with a pen. You couldn't. You couldn't cross out anything. Every you had a certain amount of words that you had to like fit into each line. Uh, it was all these ridiculous regulations, and you would you would write these essays, and then they would always mark them and send them back to you, and be like, "You have to rewrite this one, and now you have to write another one for lack of discipline." And these were all about like lack of discipline or failure to, uh, you know, instantaneously obey orders or lack of demeanor. Um and so basically it was a way of just keeping you up the entire night. So I was just like after a week of this, I was just totally, you know, not in a state of mind. To Why'd do they well. want
0: you out? Why'd they want you out, you think? It was you was it, it was random or is because they're anti Semitic?
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, you no, know, I, I mean there was definitely like a little anti Semitism here or there. Uh for the most part, you know, there wasn't much of that. I, I don't think it was because they were anti-semitic i mean if anything, it was an c- unconscious uh disgust with 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 whatever intellectualism i might have been uh exuding uh which you can maybe you can uh, as a stretch you could define that as some kind of soft anti-semitism but um yeah i definitely I, I i stuck out like a sore thumb i mean i you know i spoke in a certain vernacular uh that most of the other folks didn't Um, I just didn't have the demeanor that a lot, again, like most of these people came from military towns or they came from military families or they came from Ratsi. Um, and I just didn't. So they kind of just targeted all the people that stood out from the beginning. And, you know, I had made it through those preliminary three weeks. And then after that, I was like target number one because all the others had quit.
0: So they, they, they basically just made it so that you would fail.
1: So they kick you out. And then what happens? So because I had made it first through the first three weeks, uh, they, even though they thought I was a total, you know, incompetent fool, uh, they were impressed that I never quit. So, you know, the, the, the colonel, I had to like stand out in tension in, in front of him. And he laid down the verdict, which was, I had to leave, but he also said, you know, we were impressed that you didn't quit. And therefore, you know, if, if you want to come back, you can come back. But I was terrified. This all happened in Quantico, Virginia. I was terrified of that place afterward. I did not want to go back. But I still had... At that had point,
0: to- you could just say, I have a question. At that point, you're in the military no matter what?
1: No, actually, the way it offers, it's different than boot camp for the enlisted ranks. As an officer, you don't become officially part of the military until you make it through OCS. So CS.
0: you could have left to go to graduate school. And you could have yes. just been like... This was a experiment, failed experiment, but you decided to, to return. Why did this? Why did you decide to continue going with it?
1: Well, well, I should say I wasn't a great student in college, so it would have been hard for me to get into a, Got it. a you know a good graduate program. But Were you, you know, a history so many, major? Uh, I was. Yeah. Nice, nice. Yeah. So you know, part of it might have been I, I I didn't really see much opportunity, even though I you know I had, I was born with all sorts of privileges. Um, But no, I think the major thing was I still had something to prove to myself and to prove to everyone else. Uh, So I was still determined to become a Marine. Uh, And I told myself that I would go to boot camp and I would do the enlisted thing for a little while and learn what, you know, learn how to be a Marine and then go back to Officer Cannon School. And that is, in fact, what I ended up doing. So I went down to uh, Paris Island uh, off the coast of South Carolina in, I'm sorry, I said, so that was actually June of 2006. And I had gone to Officer Canada school that winter of 2006. So I, I basically I, I did some they, they were able to the government gave me some physical therapy uh, on my ankle, I got my ankle all, all healed up. And three months later, I was in Paris Island. And that was a very interesting experience for a lot of other reasons. I was older than, than most of the recruits. I do want to talk about this one second. What did your family think when you were doing all this?
0: What did your like family of center left Jewish Democrats from Connecticut think?
1: I mean, they thought I was absolutely batshit. I mean, they they actually when I came home from uh, Quantico, they were so relieved they're like, Oh, thank God this 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 ugly, you know, foolish stage in your life is over and now you can be normal again and become a professional and and you know, I told them no, I'm not <laughs> like I'm going to boot camp. Uh, and they were just absolutely shocked and terrified. Um, you know, and in retrospect, I actually like at the time it was, I, you know, it was very much like tunnel vision. I I was very much just determined to do what I wanted to do. And, you know, in retrospect, I think about all the crap that I put my family through and I, I actually feel bad about it. Um, especially when I ended up going to Afghanistan, but yeah. So, you know, they, they had no choice at that point. I mean, I guess they could have disowned me, but they, they they were worried about me, and so they they basically supported me. You know, I, I I stayed at their place while I was doing the physical therapy, and then they saw me off to uh, South Carolina.
2: Lyle, I wonder you you talked about having you know seen the movies, basically about you know becoming uh, going to boot camp, going you know doing this stuff, and I think for most people, obviously that's like the the. The one kind of image that they have in their heads is the Hollywood image of what it's like to go to boot camp and and uh, get get the training to join one of these services. What surprised you about that experience, and and what do you think you know most people would uh, not realize about it? I mean, this is this is really kind of the. I think this really gets at the
1: heart of my book is the thing that I realized that first time I went to Officer of Candidate School, and then I realized it again at boot camp and then I just couldn't stop seeing it after that is just like how fully human all these people were like i think like their anxieties and their insecurities uh and the you know the times where they put down their guard and uh you know show a certain kind of softness or vulnerability and how that was combined with this this extremely overcompensating if not cartoonish masculinity and manliness and I mean, that's what really struck me. And I I feel like that was kind of the, you know, the gap that I was interested in closing as far as like portrayals of the military in general is like, I mean, there's incredible movies and and TV shows and, and, and books, short stories, you know, having to do with the military. But I, I often find the actual character development to be somewhat flat or one dimensional, and certainly, you know, it, you rarely get it this kind of like, just like, and you have just like all different kinds of people. I mean, I, the image is obviously like a jock, a tough guy, maybe a bully, but you have, you have that, but you also have people like me. And, and you know, you've got, you got just, just the, you know, the, the range is as wide as humanity. Right. So, but I guess the one kind of common, um, you know, thread that runs through all of us is we want to be men. Uh, and and we see this path in our lives as as making us, as guaranteeing our manliness. Um, Does the military, yeah. like, feed on
0: that insecurity?
1: Yes. They must, right? This must be a huge
0: common thread for many of the
1: soldiers who enlist so th- in the military. This is, the, this is another interesting thing about entry-level training in the military. And I would say even, like, military life in general is one of the first things the drill instructors and sergeant instructors do, and I, you know, I'm sure they have a method in place where they actually like, you know, they, they've got it down to a science, but they basically look at every recruiter, every candidate, if you're at our for Candidate school and they find out what are, what are they insecure? About, you know? And then they just, they just keep on hitting you, you know, at that point. And, and until you break basically. Um, so what's interesting is you you really see everyone's insecurity in like a very emphatic way because you have these people whose job it is is to like tear it out of them. So for me, it was that I I, I came from a privileged background. I read too many books. I was too intellectual. You know, for other people, it might be the opposite. It might be that they're they're you know they're big and they're strong, but they're total buffoons. They'll go after them for that. So they are you know. And this is kind of what I was trying to get at is, is you know, military experience, it's very toxic, you know, the, the toxic masculinity is very much there. But I think if you're paying attention, it also can, you know, it can, it can kind of um, bring to the surface a lot of these realities in ourselves that can be very healthy for us to see. Uh, it was certainly, I think in the long term, it was healthy for me to see this. What did you see? What did you see? What did you see in boot camp? Just, that just you didn't see, see elsewhere? how like so much, so much of our behavior, so much of our thinking, you know, follows from these insecurities, whatever those insecurities might be. Uh, and the, the less conscious we are of those insecurities, uh, the more we repress them, uh, the more likely our behavior is not going to be helpful for ourselves and those around us. Um, but the more conscious we become of them, you know, I don't want to totally simplify this, but I think generally speaking, um, you can be more aware of why you're thinking the way you are, why you're behaving the way, you know, this is kind of like a cognitive behavioral therapy one-on-one lesson, but I think you really do experience that. Uh and you know, a lot of these guys never really self-reflect on this, but I think a lot of them do. And Uh, I mean, this is also part of the solidarity building in these in in these types of institutions. It's precisely because we see each other at our worst. It's not just, you know, the way we think about military solidarity, I think, is often it's like you go directly to the final act on the front lines when your friend gets killed and, you know, and and you drag them to some kind of safety. And that's obviously true. But I think a lot of the solidarity building happens at you know, the very early stages, and it's designed to happen at the very early stages. And it's not just because of the risk that you're taking together or the pain that you're experiencing together. It's also that we're all seeing each other at, at our absolute worst and our absolute most embarrassed. Uh, and another scene I want to capture is, and, and I write about this, is like the shower scenes. I mean, in the shower, like everyone's butt naked. You've got like a few minutes to do everything. Everyone looks like a total klutz. People are falling left, slipping, fall, you know, left and right. Um, you know, everyone's embarrassed by their dick size or their chest size. Like, so it's, you know, and I, you know, this happens obviously for a lot of these guys. They're, they're, they were more used to it than I, maybe I was because a lot of them were, you know, they were athletes. A lot of them were high school athletes, college athletes. Uh, so this is kind of like locker room type stuff as well so you know i I think i think it doesn't need to happen in the military i think a lot a lot of sports environments kind of you know it's a very similar kind of solidarity so you come out of the boot camp
0: tell us tell us what that's like where do you go what do you think's gonna happen and 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 then what actually does happen
2: (laughs) yeah um,
1: So I got out of boot camp. I ended up. uh, I was hoping actually I could go directly from boot camp back to officer candidate school because I, you know, I didn't do. I wasn't like great at boot camp, but I definitely like halfway through I was like, okay, I can do this. You know, I get it now. So I was like, if I, I just want to accelerate this process as much as possible, get out of boot camp, and then hopefully. I mean, you just I love
0: like, training, obviously. Third time is a charm.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. But it turned out I couldn't do that. Like I had for for the you know just having to do with the complications of the, of the the bureaucracy, I actually had to go to Marine combat training, which was in North Carolina, where you actually get to learn like, you know kind of very basic infantry tactics. You throw a grenade for the first time. You fire, you, you know you start learning how to fire the rifle and you actually qualify for the rifle at boot camp, but at marine combat training, you're doing more like tactical shooting.
0: I just have a question in terms of tactics. What, what are the yeah. tactics that dominate there in terms of uh, like sort of military theory? So obviously, people think of World War II, and then we have the counterinsurgency in Vietnam. So what uh, in two thousand and six? What are the tactics that you're actually
1: learning? No, that's a great question. I I know I think I'm I, a great question there. Yeah, I know. No, you are. I'm i I'm <laughs> impressed. Um, so I, you know, I think I I think this whole part got cut out, but I think at one point I did talk about this precise question because i'd
0: love to hear about this this is yeah, very yeah, yeah, fascinating yeah, yeah. because so this like, is like pre-surge right so you're like yeah right before the surge
1: yes so th- so as i'm sure both of you know there's there's been this kind of perennial debate among you know military brass and civilian leadership like should we train for another uh war with a major power or should we just train for counter you know perpetual counterinsurgencies.
0: And, and correct me if I'm wrong, Derek, also correct me if I'm wrong, but this is the Bush administration. Their national security strategies are essentially still focused on, like, full-spectrum dominance in two-front—in in basically Asian and European wars, right? This is still like the Bush—we're going to have to be able to fight wars, t- a two-front war, wherever and whenever, correct?
2: I mean, I, that's still the doctrine now, isn't it? I mean, technically, like, yeah. nobody—yeah, I think so. I mean, there's yeah. still this idea they, that you can fight a two-front war do Right, Rumsfeld
0: doesn't really do counterinsurgency in the national security strategies, right? It's it's still like great power war, if I recall
2: correctly. Sorry, Lyle. I mean, for. Rumsfeld was big on like tech and and you yes. know reducing the number of human it, like, beings involved. or whatever. There's something, yeah, I forget, something the like port. that. Yeah, but, yeah. but it was all in service of. I mean, it wasn't like a counterinsurgency thing. That didn't. It really was all great power doctrine still, yeah. until uh, until the the war started failing. I mean, you know, then they they switched tactics.
1: Sorry, sorry to interrupt, but I just want to give people a co-
2: larger military theory context.
1: Please, oh, yeah, so. totally. So, like, I mean, I, I'm sure both of you are more schooled up on this than I am, but definitely there was it, it was actually very funny. Like, we were basically being trained like Marines have always been trained, which is if we are fighting another, you know, uh, conventional army. Uh, so the, the tactics are very much like squad rushes and and fire team rushes
0: yeah you're facing the germans in like uh as not ashen core what's the famous uh god i forget the band of brothers one but yeah it's like world war ii yeah, attack. Right? exactly like right, that's right. what so you're like, learning
1: the, yeah <laughs> the, yeah so like the training like hell we were learning how like bayonet training i talk about the bayonet training like the last time there was an official bayonet charge was during the korean war you know so why the hell are we learning bayonet training i mean that was about you know, if you actually like this, this has been written about, but like, that's just about pure dehumanization training. I mean, it's not really about the bayonet. It's about what you're saying while you're stabbing the stack of tires. You're saying kill, 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 Haji, kill, kill, kill Haji, kill, 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 Haji. So that's, that's what that's about. But I think, you know, I, it speaks to this kind of, the training was still very much like it was ancient training. I mean, it, it was, uh, and it was, it was funny. You would, you would know the times where they kind of had to like check a counterinsurgency box. Like, often this would happen in the classroom where you, you would learn about, I don't know, about, like, being on a convoy and, and, and the ways that, that the insurgents like to ambush you or where, where they like to, you know, the patterns that have been marked so far as far as where, where they're going to lay down the IEDs, which vehicle they're going to want to hit. So this is useful stuff that was especially useful when we were actually in Afghanistan, But that part of the training, at least for me, struck me as very like kind of phoning it in or it was very perfunctory. No one really was interested in that. So, yeah, I mean, it was this really silly situation where three quarters of the time you're learning conventional infantry tactics or strategy or operational doctrine. And then maybe the, the remaining quarter, there's this there's this perfunctory regrettable lesson about, you know, oh, by the way, we're doing this counterinsurgency thing. Here's the idea of the strategic corporal, every corporal, you know, everything they can do can potentially have strategic significance. You know, if they shoot a civilian on the other hand, if they build a relationship with a local elder, you know, so you do get that, but it's, it's often treated as kind of this, this annoying thing that needs to be squeezed, squeezed into the program, uh, it, it's not at all fun. And it's really the the fun training that gets the most interest, both from the recruits and candidates and also the, I think, to a large degree, the instructors.
0: So while you're being trained in marine combat, what is your connection to what's going on in politics? Are you able to read shit from outside? How are you developing ideologically? Are you still like full-on neocon? How, how has or ha- has not the experience of training informed your
1: politics. So at boot camp, you have no access to the outside world for three months straight. Or at least that's how I remember it. Um, officer candidate school. After the first few weeks, you do have like one day off on the weekend, and there you can you can basically go wherever you want and get access to the internet. But I mean, for the most part, even at officer candidate school, like I'm very much focused on just getting through this program. Uh, so I wasn't staying afloat on on the current politics at all. I would say that once I made it to um 29 Palms, California, which is where my initial enlisted uh, military occupational specialty schooling was. I was being trained to basically be a systems administrator for the air wing. And anyone
0: anyway, I- near LA, you could go visit beautiful 29 Palms. It's right near Palm Springs.
1: Yeah, exactly. We would, we would once in a while we would go to Palm Springs and that was like our big, you know, our big, uh, moment with, with civilization. Um, uh, and yeah, and I write about 29 palms. It's a, it's a fascinating place. I mean, there's a lot of history there and, um, but, uh, that was really like, there was a lot of downtime. Uh, I was back with my college girlfriend at that point. It was a, it was a distance relationship, Um, but we were constantly talking politics on the phone, uh, you know, and she was, she, she was a good kind of, you know, liberal, liberal media person. And she was very interested at the time, um, to her credit, you know, about, you know, all the sexual violence, uh, and sexual dynamics that were taking place in the Marines and was actually thinking about maybe doing a story on it inspired by what I was telling her, um, so that was often what, like, were, what were you telling her could you, could you i mean i was just telling that? her like there you know the f- every week a new platoon would arrive so these were um very young marines uh who had just come from marine combat training uh and before that they'd come from boot camp and there was al- there was always just like something between maybe like two to eight percent maybe ten percent at most of of these platoons were comprised of women Uh, and you know, right off the bat, like the, the topic of conversation is like, you know, which girl is going to be, uh, you know, the, the barracks slot for this week or whatever. I mean, it was just like, it was so upfront. It was, you know, of course, this is what you would expect from an organization like this. And I, I did expect this, but again, like it's one thing to kind of understand it intellectually. It's another thing to like actually be amid it. And, you know, I just like have this this very like vivid memory of like seeing these women arrive, you know, initially and they were very excited. And I, you know, I became friends with some of them and, and they're very honest with me about like, Oh, I love this place. You know, it's all these hot men that are interested in me and I get, you know, all the sex I want. And then, you know, a few weeks go, go by a, few, a month goes by and they're all, you know, this isn't always the case. Um, but I did notice this with a lot of the women, like their demeanor changes, uh, you hear rumors about that, that so-and-so went to the sergeant or the staff sergeant to complain about, um, sexual harassment or even getting raped. And even the way that like all my fellow Marines talked about this, it was like, you, it was just rule number one, you, you know, you don't believe the, the woman, you know, that, oh, she's just, she's just trying to get attention. And again, of course, this is all very obvious, I think, uh, to most thinking people in our society, but just like experiencing it day in and day out, you know, this was naturally became uh, a topic of conversation between me and my, my girlfriend at the time. Uh, and we, we did talk about like the legal aspects of this. I mean, that, that these female Marines had no one to really go to. I mean, they, they, they had to entrust, these other male Marines that were in their chain of command to, to make the right decision, um, which was to, you know, proceed with further investigations. And usually that's not what ended up happening. So, you know, that was, as far as like politics goes, a lot of it had to do centered around that sort of thing. But I was also like reading, I mean, the internet was becoming, you know, it was still the age of blogdom. So I, I was reading a lot of different blogs and, at that point, I still was self-identifying as some kind of mix of, some kind of weird impossible mix of both a neoconservative and a libertarian at the same time, which isn't as odd. it wasn't as uncommon as you, th- as you might think it would be. I mean, a lot of the, my friends, my college friends at the time were also defining themselves as simultaneously libertarians who also supported the war on terror. You know, it, it, I mean, it doesn't have to make sense. As long as Classic
0: you're the, end of history politics.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. As long as you're the kind of person who ends up on top, that's that's all that really matters. And I remember, I, I, I guess, like Milton Friedman died like a year or two later. And I, when I was doing research for my book, I I was looking at all my old emails with a lot of my college friends and marine friends that were political. And I remember that was like a big day for me, like when Milton Friedman died, like I was just having like endless conversations with all these people about the meaning of his death and Pinochet. And I remember like having one conversation where I was talking about like libertarianism and how it's not a dogmatic creed. And if you look at, you know, Friedman, for instance, he, you know, his relationship with Pinochet acknowledged that you, you know, sometimes you have to embrace a certain kind of state power in order to uh, enforce uh, market logic in places uh, that it's unfamiliar. And I remember applying that kind of logic to the Middle East. And, and you know, I even say in the book that it, my, my libertarianism or even my kind of like neo Wilsonism seemed to be curdling at that point into a kind of fascist tendency. I mean, I was basically... This was a time when the Iraq War was not going well. Uh, the Afghanistan War was not going well. Um, and I, you know, I was having these exchanges where I was saying like, you know, we, we need to be more, you know, maybe we have to be more like aggressive about instituting, uh, you know, the policies that we want there. Uh, like it's not just going to organically emerge, you know, as Hayek might say.
2: Building a little bit on on these lines, I guess uh, this may be a a somewhat weird juxtaposition to to what you just talked about, but uh, I think it's sort of in the same vein. Can you talk a little bit about religion in the military, uh, Christianity specifically, sort of the role that uh, it plays in kind of uh, both kind of at the officer level and sort of minding the store and kind of setting rules and, and then... At the enlisted level, I mean, this is something that maybe came to the fore more uh, during the war, because of the war on terror, because of the nature of the conflict being, you know, there's a, a sort of a, uh, you get a sense of a Christian against, is Christianity against Islam kind of a thing. And, uh, you know, among some U.S. officers and certainly, uh, you know, this, that sentiment is probably there. But, but what was your experience kind of uh, interacting with, with Christianity within the, the Marine Corps? Yeah, no, that's a great question. Um
1: I can uh, I can answer it in a lot of different ways. I'll say at a basic level, um, you know, you did have, you know, the devout Christians, um, but they weren't as predominant as I suspected they would be. Uh, I would say I, I actually noticed more kind of devout devout true believing uh Christians among the actually actual officer class. I don't know if that was representative, but it, it seemed like They were they had this more kind of religious innocence or idealism to them where, you know, a lot of the kind of enlisted guys I was with, a lot of them did come from religious backgrounds. And in one way or another, they were rebelling against it. I mean, like one of the things I noticed is how many like one of the drill instructors at boot camp was was an open uh, very loud Satanist who had Satan tattoos all over him and was co- constantly trying to recruit all of us to the church of Satan. And it was, you know, I, it was mostly kind of a joke that he was, but it but he really, I, I think he was really into this whole Satanism thing. And I came across other Marines throughout my career who were <laughs> self-avowed Satanists. Uh, you had a lot of people that just totally rejected religion entirely uh, again, because a lot of them came from religious backgrounds you had a lot of people that were like casually Christian or politically Christian. So yeah, you did have this kind of civilizational kind of Christianity where it was like, it was more about hating Muslims (laughs) than it was about, about loving Christianity. So you do have that. And then I, I kind of, I, you know, the book, you know, I, I I psychoanalyze myself and, and through psychoanalyzing myself, I end up psychoanalyzing a lot of uh, other people around me. And I do think that there was the military offered a, a kind of, um, escape for a lot of these people who came from very devout, you know, pious, uh, backgrounds, uh, you know, barracks life is, is not very Christian. Uh, it's not very pious. Uh, it's very sexual. Uh, it's very sensuous. Uh, it's very violent and aggressive, not to say that Christianity isn't also very violent and aggressive historically, but it's, it's, it's not at all, uh, a Jesus inspired way of, of life. Uh, and I think that's one of the, it's appeals for a lot of folks that come from, from those types of families or towns.
0: Lyle Rubin, Lyle Jeremy Rubin, thank you so much for joining us. Everyone check out pain is weakness leaving the body and we look forward to having you walk again soon
1: thanks a lot I I enjoyed this